The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. One of the earliest experiences in ministry is, um, is just a small moment, but I'll never forget it. It was, uh, I think, the fall of 2006. I had just come on staff here at West Pines and just become a pastor, and we had a, another, one other pastor on staff at the time. We were a pretty small operation. It was pretty much just me and this guy and a couple part-time staff. The other pastor's name was John. He was our creative arts pastor, and uh, we ended up sending him out a couple years later, planting our, our sister church, Crossway. And um, we were, I was a brand new pastor and figuring out ministry, and, and we had a, an upcoming baptism service that we were doing. We were meeting in a cafeteria at the time, and we would do baptisms in the pool uh, behind the, the cafeteria. And we had a baptism coming up, and I had talked about it and announced it, and I was going to be baptizing some people. John would be baptizing some people. And so we were setting up for this baptism, and we go back into this storage kind of garage area, and we're getting supplies for that. And while we're in there, man, there's kind of a question on my mind that uh, I kind of needed to ask, but I didn't really want to ask. Um, and so finally, I just said, hey, John, um, here's the truth, man. I've actually never baptized anyone before. And so I, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, like, how do you, like, put them under the water? Like, what do I do? And he says, are you, are you serious? Like, did they not ask you that before they hired you? You've, like, never done this before? And I'm like, no, man, I, I really, I'm, you just help me. I'm asking for help here. And so, so we just kind of stop. We put our things down. We're standing right there in the storage room. And he says, okay, so here's what you do. You're going to have them, they're going to plug their nose like this. And then you're going to grab their arm. And then you're going to put another hand behind their head. And you lower them down. And I'm kind of looking at him, like, trying to get it. He's like, okay, just plug your nose. So I plug my nose. He said, I'm grabbing your arm. He said, I'm going to put my hand behind your head and, and see how I'm just kind of lowering you down. And I'm, he's like, okay, all right, now try it on me. So then, so then he plugs his nose and I grab his arm. I put my hand on the back of his head and I'm baptizing him. And, and, and there's a moment where we just stopped after all of this back and forth. And we looked at each other and we just, this thought just realized we just were air baptizing each other <laughs> alone <laughs> in the storage room. Okay, this... I had a question that made me uncomfortable. I didn't know how to baptize, but then another question just then I didn't even think to ask hit me. What if someone had walked in just now? How we, we got like our arms around each other. And I'm like, you know, like how do we describe what just took place in this moment? And so I, we might have agreed never to speak of that moment actually now that I think about it. And so, um, so here's what we're talking about. We're talking about these questions in the room. And um, sometimes there's questions that we know to ask. They're hard to ask. They feel a little bit, of, we don't know if we should, if we're allowed. There, there are these questions that we know we're supposed to have. But sometimes there's a question that hasn't occurred to us yet that it's actually pretty obvious. It just hasn't occurred to us. And that's the type of question that we're going to talk about this morning. We've been talking about through this series, these questions that are pretty obvious. But there's one question that for most of us, it probably hasn't occurred to us yet. It makes a lot of sense. It's very obvious. It just hasn't entered our brains. And this particular question, if we stop and ask it, it's so powerful. It actually, it's a really impacting question for us personally and for us as a church. And there's a passage we're going to look at. It's in Nehemiah chapter 12. And it sets up this question 
for us. Now, let me just give you a background if you're just joining us in this story um, about Nehemiah. Let me give you the background of what's happening. If you can picture, if you've ever seen a movie about like the story of Jesus and you've seen a movie about, maybe it's like a, a period kind of movie and Jesus is walking through ancient Jerusalem and they're kind of depicting that, you might think of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus as this thriving, bustling city and it really was. It was an important city for that region. And it was like that in other parts of its history as well. If you rewind a thousand years and you go back to the time of David and Solomon, that was when, I mean, Jerusalem was kind of just started getting on the map. I mean, it was when it became kind of like the world, kind of got the world's attention and people were coming from all over the place to see Jerusalem and, and it was just exploding. But about halfway between the two, about 450 BC, about halfway between the two, that was the exact opposite of the situation. Jerusalem was in ruins in the middle. It was just the, the walls were knocked down, everything was torn down, the people didn't even live there, they were taken back by their conquerors. And what God was just starting to do is he's starting to send people back. A guy named Ezra goes back, leads some people back, they start rebuilding the temple. Then a guy named Nehemiah comes back and he starts rebuilding the wall. And that's been the story we've been looking at, the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. And once the wall and the temple are constructed, it's like the city is like viable. It's safe. They've got a center of worship. They start repopulating the city. They start setting up the spiritual community. And that's been this journey that we've been reading. And Nehemiah has 13 chapters, but chapter 12 is really the end of the story. Chapter 13 is like an epilogue from like 15 to 20 years later. Chapter 12 is really the end of the story. It's like the crescendo. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And what happens in this chapter, it's kind of a beautiful way to end the story. They have a celebration ceremony for the wall that's been built. So we're going to take a look at this. It's really a beautiful story, uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 27. You can turn there in your Bible or your Bible app. It's also going to be up here on the screens. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nadophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now pause with me here and just kind of get the idea of what's happening. This is a whole deal. Like they're not just sitting around one night and being like, hey, you know what, tomorrow night let's all go out to dinner and celebrate that the wall was built. I mean, this is a whole like nationwide like endeavor. I mean, this is a huge thing. People are coming from all over the nation there to celebrate this dedication of the wall. I don't know if you noticed, but they get singers and musicians from all over the country to come in for this. It's like the best of the best uh, that they bring in. In fact, you even see the priests, they purify themselves. And what that means is that probably some kind of ritual bath that they took. Same with the Levites, the people that work in the temple. They also ask the people to purify themselves. And then if that wasn't enough, they actually purify the walls and the gates also. So it probably means priests are going around and sprinkling water all around the walls and the gates. They're purifying themselves for this. This is a big deal. They take a moment to stop and remember 
all that God had done. That's an important, that's an important thing. You see this all throughout Scripture. You see God's people, they stop all the busyness and craziness of their lives. They stop to remember all that God has done for them. In fact, I want to sit on this for just a second. Point number one on your outline is they stopped to rejoice. You know, this is important. You know, for some of us, we're so busy in our lives that we never stop and say, you know what, I need to remember all that God is doing. In fact, so often, figuring out where to go next, a lot of times we can determine how God's moving next by by looking back and seeing all that he's done in our past. It's an important part of our relationship with God. Um, as we, we kept reading, you'd read about how they had these two great choirs. They go up on the wall. Nehemiah leads one one way. Ezra leads one the other way. They're two leaders. They go all the way around the wall, and they stop on either side of the temple, and they sing. And there's, this, there's a huge celebration. This is how it's described. Jump down to verse 43. Here's what it says. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Look at this. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And this is so beautiful. Look at this. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What kind of a beautiful, I mean, that's such a great closing phrase for this story. They come together. There's sacrifices. Men, women, and children. The whole community is singing. And did you notice this? Did you notice that it says God caused them to rejoice With a great joy, did you catch that part? There was this sense that God was there that day in that that moment. It was like God was saying, yes, this is a beautiful thing. You're stopping to remember what I've done in your midst. That's an important part of the story. Number two on your outline, God inspired their joy. They're rejoicing. God is swelling their hearts with worshipful joy for what he had done. And then it ends. I mean, this is such a beautiful phrase. It says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I mean, what like a, that's like the best closing line. You just imagine like the music swells. Okay, the camera's panning away from Jerusalem. The credits start to roll at the end. I mean, that's like... A perfect way to conclude the whole story. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Think of the significance of that. That's powerful. Think of it if you're Nehemiah. The the story starts the exact opposite. Nehemiah is far away. He's the cupbearer to the Persian king. And he hears news of Jerusalem. That he realizes the shame and brokenness they're in. And now at the end of the story, their joy and their gratitude is heard far away. They've come full circle. See, this is an important part for us to stop and think about. Number three on your outline, their joy was amplified. Isn't that a dynamic of worship and of celebrating and praising God? When we're praising God, man, that's contagious and it spreads when we're celebrating what God has done. It draws people in. This is a powerful moment. They intentionally stop to celebrate. Nehemiah is going up on that wall. I want you to put yourself... In the, in the shoes of Nehemiah. I want you to imagine what he's thinking about. He goes up on that wall, there's this huge choir before him, some of the leaders behind him, and he starts taking one step. Can you imagine that moment? Everyone in the country is gathering. Can you imagine with each step what he's remembering? Wow, God. So many years ago, I, 
so many months ago, I was sitting there and I was, I was minding my own business, cupbearer to the king, and then the, some brothers show up from Jerusalem and they tell me how bad the situation is. And remember, if you were here when we studied that, he was broken. I mean, just kind of had an instantaneous reaction where he just wept and he cried. And, and, he, and he began praying and fasting. He's like, I've got to do something. And began planning, God, what do you have for me to do? And he was waiting. He says, okay, you've placed me here as the cupbearer to the king. So you have to have a role for me to play. But how in the world is the king, the most powerful man in the world, the king of Persia, going to listen to me, one of his servants? But he prayed and planned. He must have, with another step, he must remember. But remember that day, I'll never forget it. The king said, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And I knew, oh my goodness, this is my moment. He says, and I was terrified. He said, all I could do is just pray, God, help me. And he said, I didn't know if that moment I was going to get executed, that was going to be the end, or if this was going to be the beginning of something powerful. And I told him, I want to go back to my, the city of my father's and rebuild this, this wall. And the king just sat there quietly waiting to see what his fate would be. And he said, okay, how long have you gone? And in fact, let me just send you letters so you have safe passage. And, and actually, there's, I have a forest near there. You can use all that lumber. And let me send you some, some soldiers with you. And he says, I'll never forget that day. I couldn't believe what you had done, God. You were obviously at work and would travel to Jerusalem. And I wonder if his eyes started to well up when he remembered. He had just showed up at the valley gate that night. And it was nighttime. And he talked about how he, he went around the wall. And he looked at it just to see what the state of the wall. And he saw all the rubble. And now he's walking on that same wall. And I wonder if he remembered that moment. He says, I'll, I wonder if he stops and says, man, I was so nervous that day. I had to stand before the people of Jerusalem and cast vision. Hey, we're going to get up and we're going to build this wall, even though none of us have any idea how to build a wall. And I wonder if he was like, man, I didn't know if I was going to get laughed out of the city, if they were going to riot against me. I had no idea. And so he cast this vision. We're going to look at all that God's done. We're going to build this wall. And there, it was like God struck a chord in all of their hearts. It reverberated through all of them and they all shouted, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up from these ashes and let's bring something beautiful out of this. And we started building. And I wonder if with another step he remembers, man, that first time we started putting bricks in place and we were excited. And it got, but then after all, I got tough. I mean, blistered hands, sore backs. We're not wall builders. And I wonder if you remember, man, remember all the opposition that we faced. We had all these people that were, that were angry that were doing this. Other cities that threatened to attack us. We had to post guards. All of a sudden, there were people trying to trap me that were my own friends. And there's people on the outside that were, they were trying to get me to come meet with them because they were going to try and kill me. We didn't even know, we didn't know how to do this. We, we didn't know who to trust. And, and all of a sudden, in record time, it was a miracle, we finished this wall. And then he says, I'll never forget that first time Ezra brought us all together. I wonder if he thought with another, another step and with a tear going down his face, he said, I'll remember, never forget that first worship service that we had. And Ezra just read through the law and we all wept that God's, the truth of God has returned to his city. And he says, I wonder, I wonder if he remembered as he's looking down at the people that are all gathered in the temple, the two choirs on the wall on either side of the temple. He's looking down and he remembers when they said, hey, we've got to repopulate the city. Some of you are going to have to leave your homes and come to this city and live and, and repopulate this. And I wonder if he remembered how the first couple volunteers caused him to choke up when he saw, man, these people are surrendering everything to go live in this city. Imagine what a powerful moment it was for Nehemiah to celebrate all that, remember all that God had been doing. What a powerful moment. What a beautiful way to end the story in chapter 12. But if you have a Bible or your Bible app open, that's actually not the last verse of chapter 12. There's actually more to the story. That's actually not how the credits don't roll at that point. Look at verse 44. On that day, 
Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and, and his son Solomon. Do you see what these last verses are about? It's kind of this weird moment to end on. It's like this administrative detail. This huge celebration. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I mean, end it there. And then you have these other verses and it says, okay, we need some gatekeepers. We need you over there, gatekeepers. You guys in the storehouses, we've got some places. We've got, we got some, some positions that we need filled. And you notice it says they didn't do that a couple days later after the celebration. They did that that day. It was part of their celebration. Here's why that's the perfect way to end this story. Because they weren't saying, let's celebrate, the wall is complete, we're done. They're saying, now God's done all of this, let's take our positions because of what God is about to do. It was a note saying, all right, everyone get in your places, everyone find a place to get ready because God's about to to work. Number four on your outline, they took their positions in expectation. Their ex, their, they had this expectation, man, God has been up to something. He's going to continue to do a great work. Man, it's so important to stop at certain moments in our lives and look back and remember. You remember all that God has done? You know, church, it's important for us to remember what all God has done for us. We have great reason to stop and celebrate. 2001, it was a summer. A couple, Clark and, and Brenda Mayer, hosted 31 people in their, in their living room. And there's a, actually a picture. You can count all 31. They're all, they all fit in the frame. And they're there right there in Clark's living room, and they start talking about, okay, there's this brand new community out here in West Pembroke Pines where we live, and there's, a, there's houses being built everywhere, and people are moving in. There's not many churches. We need a church out here. And they started talking. What would happen if there was a church out here? There's a pastor there in their midst had a heart for church planning, and they started planning. What would happen if God planted a church here in, in West Pembroke Pines? So they said, okay, well, let's meet in a cafeteria. And so they, they picked Chapel Trail Elementary right over there off of a Taft. And they went into the, the cafeteria. They reserved it and they set it up. And their first Sunday, they couldn't believe they had almost 50 people there that first Sunday. Wow, we can't believe we've already grown just these couple months. There's these new faces being added. And they were celebrating for 48 hours. That first Sunday was September 9th, 2001. And for two days, they were celebrating what God was doing in their midst. And that Tuesday, God switched their entire focus to what was happening in their country. Because on that Tuesday, there was a terrorist attack around, throughout our, our, our country, September 11th. And that next Sunday, they had 150 people show up. In one week, the church had grown 200%. God was placing a church in a community because he knew this community is going to need it. Those early years, I mean, if you're part of the if you're part of a church plant and you're working, I mean, you're doing everything. There's no one else to do it. So, you know, you're, you're helping set up and tear down. You're singing in the band. You don't even sing, but someone's got to sing in the band, okay? And 
you're singing and you're working in the nursery and you're hosting community groups. I mean, those are those early days, those people, I mean, the seeds that they sowed, their blood, sweat, and tears in those early days, and, and they started to see people coming to Christ. And they started to see this, this small congregation started to grow and see new faces and these huge stories and baptisms and things happening from the community. And about four years later, the, the uh, planting pastor felt God calling his, he and his family to another place, and they found themselves without a pastor, and they, they needed to find, okay, we just need someone to fill in in the interim, and uh, somehow they thought back to a kid who had been an intern for them a couple summers earlier, who was now newly married and in seminary, and so they gave him a call. And I looked down, I saw someone was calling me from South Florida, and I picked up the phone, and they, they were, began talking about how the pastor, the, the founding pastor had left, and they need an interim, and I said, okay, you realize um, I've maybe preached about two dozen sermons in my entire life. Um, so actually, my question is, how many other people have you asked? Like, how far down the list am I? In fact, I'm actually now offended that you're calling me. Now I know where I stand, okay? And so Rebecca and I began to talk about it. I was in school. She was finishing up her master's in social work. And we said, okay, what are you, what are you doing here? And, and God, what are, you, what are you doing? We're like, well, look, this is a, they're insane, but this is a great gig for us. I get an opportunity to preach on the weekends. And so I'd, I'd go down, we'd, I'd study in Louisville at school and I'd, we'd, I'd go down on the weekends. Sometimes Rebecca would come with me and I'll never forget about two months in, we were going through a series in Philippians and we got towards the end of chapter one and there's a verse at the end of chapter one that says this, it says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So live a life worthy of your calling. I remember studying that and starting to put together a sermon and I realized what the gravity of what this passage is saying. This passage is right there from the very beginning of the church and it's saying, look, following Jesus Christ is not for the faint-hearted. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, it's because you're so driven that you know actually death, going to be with Jesus, is actually better and so you, you expend, you give up this life knowing that actually you, one day you'll be with Jesus and that's better. And I remember the gravity of that and the weight of that and, and, and what it would take to preach that passage. And I was like, I, I'm too scared to preach this passage. And so I had a buddy of mine that was in seminary with me. His name was Dan Gossett. He lived a couple doors down. And I go knock on Dan's door and I said, dude, I got to sit down with you. I got the sermon I'm supposed to preach this weekend. I'm too scared to preach this. I mean, this is what this passage is about. What do I do? And he said, look, if that's what the passage is saying and that's what God's put on your heart, then you have no options. It's a matter of obedience. You have to preach it. And I'll pray for you. So I came down that weekend. Rebecca came with me, and I, I won't ever forget that Sunday. I opened it up, and man, I was terrified. I think I was actually shaking. I'm like, so the pastor says you have to live as Christ and die as gain. You know, and I'm trying to, trying to preach it as boldly as I can, you know, just scared. And all of a sudden, man, something happened in that room that, that morning. And it was like God... It's like he strum a chord and then the chords inside all of our hearts started reverberating the same. And it was like you could hear a pin drop in the room that morning. I mean, there was tears, there was intensity as we were all like, it's like all together realizing the call of following Jesus and together we were like, yes, that is it. And we were that, later that evening, Rebecca and I are in the car and I remember we pull up to the light at Sheridan and Flamingo and I see one of the leaders at West Pines is calling and I pick up the phone and he says, look, um, we're starting to think that you're called to be the lead pastor here at West Pines. And I said, well, you're insane. That's a terrible idea. 
okay? I said, I remember, I, I looked at them and said, look, I have, I've never been on staff full-time at a church ever. And they said, look, we just feel like God is in this. And so we, Rebecca and I prayed about it. And, and um, by the next fall, I'd come on staff. And another pastor named John had come on staff. And we was kind of a new beginning that fall of 2006. And so we did a series called Rise Up and Build. We did a series on Nehemiah. And we had no idea how much we would need that series because of the obstacles we were about to face. And over the next two years, to be completely transparent, it was, it was tough. Those were tough years. There was years of transition. There was years of pain. There was a lot of mistakes that young leaders were making. There, were, there was people that we, we were shrinking. There's people leaving. And it was a point, we get to the point, right before the summer of 2008, and I remember looking at, at John, the other pastor, and we said, you know, there's a real chance we're not going to make it through the summer. But here's what it's like. God at that point said, okay, I've been hearing your prayers and now I'm going to start doing something. And we didn't notice it at first, but what he started doing in that season uniquely is God started sending West Pines leaders. Now, the people we were after were not the church. We wanted the people who don't go to church. If they're in church, great. We want the people who don't know Jesus. We still want, that's still who we're after. But in that season, God's like, no, here's, I know that's what you're after. That's great. That's the vision. But in this season, you need leaders. And started sending these seasoned workers. And they weren't coming up like, where's my leadership position? They're like, where can I help? Let me, can, let me unload, the, uh, unload and help you set up and tear down. And you want me to rock babies? I'll do whatever it takes. And they start, and get their, they get, start to serve and get their hands dirty. And we couldn't believe it. And we're like, man, why are these people coming? Because those years in the cafeteria, I mean, they were special. Okay? There was one Sunday a rat ran through the cafeteria. A living rodent, people. Okay, you track him with me, all right? We used to have this, I mean, one Sunday the AC went out like an hour before. We had to get these industrial fans. We had to buy them from Lowe's that morning and blow cold air on people so that they survived the Sunday, okay? We, we one time, we had, used to have this truck. We had all of our stuff in this box truck that Christ the Rock Community Church had given us. I mean, there's so many churches that have poured into our church. And they actually let us park it on their property for free. And we would go pick it up and drive it and to, to the cafeteria and unload it every single week. And we drove that truck into the ground. In fact, one Sunday, it's pulling into the parking lot and it catches on fire. I'm not saying there was smoke. I'm saying flames coming out of the engine block. Okay, like fire engines came. Okay, these were the years. And there's people like, I know, this is... I, I don't know why I'm here, but God's doing, God's doing something here. And God brought us some leaders in that season, and we needed it because we came around to 2009, and something else happened. About 25% of our people, God took out from our church over that, over that month or two, took out from our church, and he was moving them to a different work. And it was hard. It was painful. And, about, and especially because those 25 people were so many of the people that had sacrificed and given and poured into the church in the early years. And so when those people left, it should have been kind of the death blow for West Pines. But God had brought people that were ready to step in and serve and lead. Like, let me give you an idea of how strategic that 12 to 18 months in 2008, 2009, West Pines is almost 15 years old, but in that one little stretch, the leaders that came were so significant. Let me give you an idea. Today, that comprises 30% of our leadership team came in that one small segment of time. 30% of our staff came in that time. And four out of our six elders came to West Pines in that time. That was a season where God's like, here's these people because you're going to need them. You're going to need them for what I'm about to do. 
those years, we, we, 2009 was a year of transition. We get into the summer and we liked the cafeteria. It was a great spot, and, but all of a sudden our rates hiked up and all of a sudden we realized God is moving us into a facility. And so uh, during that year, Matt and, Militia, Matt and Melissa had come on staff and Matt's on the hunt to find us a location. And we found out by these crazy coincidences that there was in the same warehouses that our tiny little office was, there was this large church that was wanting to get out of their facility. They were wanting to move out of those warehouses. And um, it was an in- most interesting arrangement because they needed to leave early. They were moving to another location, but they still had time left on their contract. They needed to leave early. And the landlords were desperate for a church to move in because it was a church-shaped space. They have to completely demolish it and open it for something else. So they really wanted a church there. And so in our conversations, we realized, this is insane. These two people, they need us. It's not just that we need a space. God, you've set it up. They want us in there. And so Matt would be back and forth negotiating. And finally, they got arrangements so that we could financially, they they made the rent as low as it could be the first year. And then they worked its way up over five years. And we came back in an elder meeting. And and we said, Matt, okay, well, man, we're not sure we can afford this. What's the lowest number the first year? And he says, well, here's the low number. We said, well, we can't even afford that. So this was a short conversation, okay? <laughs> that, was, that was easy. Um, and we stopped, like, okay, what's it going to be over the year? And we get over the years, and, and they told us the, the number after five years, and we're like, man, I can't imagine, you know, where we're at now. Like I, and I remember, I think I said, Matt, how large did we have to grow to to be able to afford that? And he says, well, over the next five years, we'd have to double. And we're all kind of quiet, and it was like, <sighs> and I was like, man, that's a lot. And then Matt said, wait a minute. If we don't believe God is doing something in our midst, then everyone in this room needs to resign their position. Of course God's doing something in our midst. And we're like, what are we thinking? Of course he's at work doing something. And so we said, okay, let's do this. And I'll never forget that first Sunday, beginning of January 2010, we moved into this facility and we didn't have enough people to even fill up half of this room. So we only had chairs going halfway back. And we just hoped when people came in, they didn't notice the gigantic space in the background. Show that they just kept looking at the stage. You know, don't look back here. You know, there's nothing there. And I remember stopping and saying, Lord, are you, could you ever fill this room like once? Like I just, what would that be like? And that first two days, I mean, 2000, January 10th, 2010, for two days, we were celebrating Monday, Sunday, Monday, what God was doing in our midst. But then something happened on Tuesday that took all of our attention and turned outside to what God is doing in our world. Because on that Tuesday, an earthquake devastated the country of Haiti. And it broke our hearts. And we immediately as a church were mobilized into action. We were finding supplies, sending them over, raising money, planning mission trips. And those mission trips that year in 2010, it changed our church. And there was one mission trip in particular in the fall of 2010. And we were going to work with this orphanage there. And it was such a desperate situation. So many of those orphans had been orphaned because of the earthquake. And we're meeting with these children and we're trying to bring supplies and love and the gospel and and trying to wrap around these kids and we're working with them. We had some medical professionals with us on that trip and I'll never forget there's one moment that that changed all of us. There's There's a woman that walked in, a young woman from the community walked into the orphanage and she had her little girl by the hand and she had her son in her arms and the little girl had a dress on and, had, and her mom had put her, her hair in pigtails. And the little boy had these like slacks on and this shirt, this button-down shirt. And it was obvious that she had like gone out and found these clothes to dress them up. And she walks in with these two kids and we see these children and we see immediately that there's some medical 
difficulties here. They're unbelievably malnourished. In fact, the little boy, maybe two years old, in her arms was so malnourished that he was lethargic. His eyes were barely open. And so our team jumps into action and, and some of them are holding him and they start pouring into his mouth this formula that our local hospital here in, in South Florida had donated to, for us to take on the trip. And it was like we were pouring life into him. He was like, <gasps> like this. It's just, it's just going down, down into his stomach and it's like reviving him. In fact, if West Pines is your church home and you haven't seen this picture, you need to take a look at this picture. Because that moment changed us. We watched as these orphan, orphan, the workers at the orphanage were talking with this mother and she was sullen and they were starting to get animated and I saw this local pastor that we were working with and he walks to the side and he breaks down crying and I'd never seen that before from a local Haitian pastor. I just hadn't seen him do that. And he starts crying and we said, and I walked over with him, I said, what's going on here? And he said, this woman, she's gotten her kids dressed up and she's walked them to the orphanage. She's realized she no longer has the, the ability to provide food for them and they're starving. So she's here to surrender her kids to the orphanage. I think about taking Scarlet and putting her hair in pigtails for the last time. And taking my son Nehemiah and putting a little Sunday outfit on him for the last time and, and taking him somewhere to surrender him because I can't provide basic necessity for their survival. And I talked to this pastor and he said something. I, it will, I'll never forget it. He was urgent. He says, this is what we're dealing with here. This is what the church, the Christian church is up against. This is why we need Christians coming to Haiti and bringing su supplies and love and the gospel. He says, do you realize what's going on in Haiti? He says, this is not a game. And we came back that fall and we had a service where we were talked about what was happening. We showed these pictures and talking about what's happening in Haiti and we talked about it and we recounted it and we talked about what this pastor had said and we asked ourselves a tough question. We said, is this just a game? Are we just playing church? And it was like God hit a, hit a note and it reverberated all inside of all of us and we realized this can't just be a game because there's a church game that you can play where there's a church staff and they're like, hey, we want a successful ministry. And there's a congregation that says, we want a comfortable church. And so the church staff says, all right, we'll keep it nice and comfortable and make all the preferences just as you like it. And the congregation's like, okay, we'll attend and we'll give and we'll bring our friends. And it's just this kind of uh, a codependent relationship, just keeping it nice and comfortable. But it can't be a game. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Following Jesus is so much more than that and it's got to be all or nothing in and we all, it's like we collectively felt that and we knew that it couldn't be a game. We saw the Lord doing incredible things in that season. We saw people coming to Christ and people who, who had had, had a, a church background and, and had walked away from church, coming to church and finding Christ for the first time, getting baptized. People never thought they'd walk into church. They started, we saw God was just, he was doing something. And, uh, and it was 2013, we were going into the fall of 2013 and we, we were doing this whole study on the Sermon on the Mount. And we started with the beginning of the Sermon on the Beatitudes. And I remember we were studying those those statements of Jesus and we we're just struck by how radical they are. I mean, they literally changed the world. Those, those words and the Beatitudes 
change the world and the call to Christ, that they, the call to radical living that they are, are powerful. And I'll, I remember studying it, and I remember like this m- note came in my brain. It was like God saying, you guys cannot just waltz into this study. You need to pray yourself into this study. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Let me think about it. Now, let me just give you a piece of advice. If God ever taps you on the, on the shoulder and says, hey, you need to pray, just stop everything and pray. Don't think about it. Just pray. That first Sunday, the first beatitude is we're um, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we talked about how we are bankrupt before God. I mean, it was intense. How the majesty and the glory of God, the Almighty, how could we possibly think that we could stand before the Almighty God? And we talked about Isaiah and how he had a vision of being in the throne room. And he felt, he says, I'm being undone. It's like he said, I felt like I was being pulled apart. My molecules were dispersing before my Creator. We talked about John and how he had a vision and revelation of being before Jesus and how he just fell down on his face like a dead man before Jesus Christ. We talked about the intensity and the craziest thing. If you were there that Sunday, I bet you won't forget what happened that second service. The most unbelievable thunderstorm rolled in. And it thundered to the place where this room shook. And the crazy thing is, it did it punctuating the sermon and it was freaky. I mean, it was like, and Isaiah fell down like a dead man. It was like, okay, in this room. I mean, it was like, like there was a couple points, we just like all, no one moved. We just looked at each other. I'm like, man, I don't want to preach anymore. I'm going to get struck by lightning up here, God. I, let me off. I don't, I'm done. You know, I mean, it was crazy. And so I remember driving home and God's like, how about you pray now? Yep, got it. First thing to, I'm, we're doing, to now. I'm going to do it now. Pull over, I'm praying. And we said, okay, this is, we called an all call to the, all the leadership. We said, we need to fast and pray through this season. God's called us to do that. And we didn't realize at the end of that season, the reason why he'd called us to stop and fast and pray as a leadership. Because he was about to say, okay, you know that chord that I've been strumming through all the years? Uh, let's start talking about it. And so into 2014, as elders, we start to see the vision of who he's been making us to be is coming into, into view. And we're talking about as, as elders and we're talking about as a leadership team and as staff. And it's coming around in 2015, last year, this time, we started saying, okay, this is who God has called us to be. It's the same calling from the beginning. Back when Christ's followers were called mathetes, it was an all or nothing situation. And it's still an all or nothing situation. We can't afford to play the game. He has rescued us for eternity. We are awed in before him and who he is, and we've all been called to be mobilized out into this world. It is, it is an all-or-nothing situation, and if we do one thing as a church, we are going to be a 2016 expression of what we see his original followers giving their lives, expending this life, because death is gain anyway. And over the last years, we've been over the last year, a little over, we've been talking about that. And we've seen people come to Christ. In fact, you can see people walking around through this facility this morning wearing rescued shirts. There are people who have been rescued, been baptized, and found salvation in the last couple years. And God's been doing incredible things. To give you just one snapshot, one way of looking at it. You know, we said back in 2010, okay, in 2015, we need to have doubled in size. Well, up to date, which is actually more like six years, we've not doubled. We've over quadrupled in size. And that's what God has done. Church, on your outline, it says this. We have reason to stop and rejoice. West Pines, that's our story. That's what God's done with us. If you're new to West Pines, that's now your story. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, just like 
in Jerusalem that day. Now we have to say, okay, we built, this wall is built, this looks great. No, that's not the end. Now we need to take our positions for what's coming next. The last point on your outline is let's take our positions and expectations. Do we for a minute think that God is done working? For was there any part of us that says, wow, look what all you did. And, and okay, now I think we've arrived. No, he's bringing us, there's a sense of expectancy. What is God about to do? There is a question in the room that we have to ask. If you've never thought to ask this question, you need to ask it this morning. Why has God brought you here? Because he has brought you here for a reason. He's brought you here. He has a task for you to do. I want to extend to you a challenge this morning. Inside your bulletin, there's an insert. It looks like this. Would everyone just pull this insert out of your bulletin? On this insert, here's what you're going to find. It's a list of ways to step in and serve. If West Pines is your church home and you haven't found a place to step in and serve, this is the day. Let's do it on the day that we're we're celebrating today. Part of celebrating is let's take our positions for what's next. If West Pines is your church home and and you're not serving somewhere, today is the day. Mark, check off, fill this out on the front. Put it in some of the offering boxes. Check off a couple things you're interested in and let's start the dialogue. Why are we asking that? Is it because, hey, help out the old church. We need some help around here. No, that's not why. It's because one day we'll be standing in the new Jerusalem. Heaven. And we'll be celebrating everything that God has done. And we're all going to want to be able to look back and say, I got to be a part of that. You see that tiny little brick in the wall over there in the corner? That was my brick. We're all going to want to say, I was a part of that. Let me ask you another question this morning. Some of you, this is the question for you. When you think about heaven one day, it's called the New Jerusalem in the Bible, but when you think about heaven one day, how sure are you that you're going to be there? Are you here this morning saying, look, I'm not even for sure that I'm going to be there one day when I die. I'd love to know for certain. I'm not sure if I'm good enough. Let's, let's deal with that question. The answer to that is no one is good enough to get to heaven. But a couple hundred years after Nehemiah, Jesus entered into those gates of Jerusalem. He was crucified on a cross, but on the third day he rose again from the dead. And what was he doing? He was paying for your sins. So that if you simply accept that forgiveness, you say, I believe Jesus died in my place. And you say, Jesus, I, I give you my life. If you just simply accept that forgiveness in your life, you can know for certain that you're saved and he's preparing a place for you in heaven. Some of you, today's the day to accept that. And if that's you, I want to give you a moment right now between you and God to accept his forgiveness and receive salvation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, just take a second right there in your seat. Have a moment with God. Is God drawing you to himself? If that's you, I want you just to pray this simple prayer right there in your seats between you and God. Just say, God, thank you for having a plan to save me. Thank you for dying on the cross, Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross to forgive me. I want to follow on this journey after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954 432 
0321, or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.